Hello and welcome to Life of the School, episode 76. Hello, my name is Aaron Matthew, and I'm a biology teacher at Acton Boxborough Regional High School. Each episode of Life of the School, I like to sit down with a fellow life science teacher and ask them, how'd they get in the classroom? What are they currently working on? And what are their hopes for the future? This episode, I sit down with Sedate Kohler. Sedate is a biology teacher at Reedsburg Area High School in Reedsburg, Wisconsin. She is preparing to enter fourth year in the classroom teaching biology and AP biology. Sedate has a passion for helping students make sense of the world around them using phenomena-based teaching and connecting her students to authentic research settings. She earned both her bachelor's of science in biology and life science communication and her master's degree in curriculum and instruction from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. You can follow Sedate on Twitter at Sedate Kohler. Welcome Sedate. Hi there, thanks for inviting me. Thanks for joining me. We were talking that this is one of those uh, sort of blind dates, if you will. Like <laughs> I just reached out to you on Twitter and you're like, sure, thanks for joining me. So in the middle of the summer, um, how's your summer going? It's great. I've had a really um, wild day today of sitting around my house with my dogs. Uh, <laughs> I made breakfast slowly and I'm on my like third cup of coffee uh, and it, it did get cold, but that's because I got distracted. But in a like a a good relaxing kind of distracted, not a 500 fires burning in my classroom. Figuratively, not literally, obviously, but you know, the teacher. Yeah. (laughs) I totally get what you're saying. I I do feel like I've, I've had, you know, I, cause we get out in my school, we get out in late June. Um, Yeah. So like, and then I get into PD and I do a lot of other stuff. And I had like so many like projects to get during the summer that I didn't let myself sort of relax for the first few weeks of summer. But I do feel like the last, you know, couple of weeks it's starting to like get in that I'm getting that letting my blood pressure get down for like a constant week is probably yeah. a good thing before we start ramping back up. Yeah, I live at a pretty high uh, RPM generally, <laughs> um, which my students notice and appreciate. Um, and sometimes are are probably a, appropriately flustered by at times, just because you know once your speed doesn't match someone else's, that can be challenging. Um, but yeah, this summer, the summer thing where you have to literally calm your brain down to be like, nope, you don't have to get up and run around today. Like you can just just do normal human things. Like it's it's almost unconscionable that people will just sit around and and relax. As you should, but my brain is like, no, no, there's, there's things to do. There's things to grade. There's, you know, things to plan for. So yeah, it's it's a weird, like the psychology of your brain really changes as a teacher. (laughs) It's weird. (laughs) Yeah. I, I tend to be one of those people who people say, how do you get all of these things done? And I go, I don't know. So, but you have, you have the advantage of youth on your side Um, (laughs) in, in in 20 years, when you're still pinging around and doing all of these other things, yeah. um, <laughs> you don't have you don't have the excuse of your youth to as a backup. People right. just think you're think people think you're really weird when you're doing it. In yeah, your 40s. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is great. This will be midsummer. Uh, you know, my first week of August podcast. So this is like about as relaxed as we get. And then I think my next couple are going to be those those ramp up. You know, get ready for school. So this sure. is going to be. 
hopefully that that nice reflective conversation. Um, I, I feel like that's the other advantage that like we get. And, you know, I, I, I hesitate to say that it is um, it's downtime, but like really I have these like things that I need to like coalesce and reflect on. And when you're putting out fires, as you said, it's so hard to do that during the school year that like I get like some really good ideas um, in the, in like the last three or four days in particular, some things I was working on, like some things just popped into my head, like, Oh, I could do this or, Mm -hmm. or this is how I make that project. And I think that at the frenetic pace of the school year, I don't have as many of those moments because you literally are, as you said, just like trying to get out the fires and trying to get that next class ready. So um, I think that's the, for me, the real value of being forced to have a little bit of downtime, yeah. uh, which is not, not my preference. I don't like downtime. I think um. the other thing too, is I just, I went on a vacation. Actually, I was up in New York this past weekend and, um, we were, I was driving from the airport to my final destination and my friend and I stopped at a state park on the way and it was on Lake Ontario and mm. I'm from Milwaukee and I lived within less than a mile from Lake Michigan. And so I have a pretty strong connection to the Great Lakes and just being from Wisconsin, but then Madison has a set of lakes and it's a very lake heavy area. Mind you, we have the neighbor of Minnesota up there with all the 10,000 lakes, which we actually have more, but that's a story for a different day. But on this sign um, on Lake Ontario was this, um, just these pieces about the lake and about pollution and about what are the things that are challenging the Great Lakes and how is climate change challenging the Great Lakes and something that we'll get into in a little bit, I'm sure is talking about my social media presence with my kids. And so my my immediate thought is like, A, I need to incorporate this as a storyline, as a phenomenon for my classroom. And B, I need to post it on my teacher Instagram immediately, which is just <laughs> such a silly thought. Um, and I did obviously, and, uh, I didn't get a response. This is just the way kids were. I didn't get a response about that, but one of the kids did, um, I guess he's not a kid anymore. He's now an adult, but he responded to my story talking about where he's at with his like summer program before his freshman year of college. So, um, you know, it's just funny the, in our minds, like what has to continue to get done. And then like these random organic moments pop up and, um, you like store it in the back of your head for later. Yeah. Inspiration. Yeah. You get new inspiration points. Yeah. That's awesome. All right. So let's get to the question I like to start out with everybody, because I do have a feeling that each of these questions I I have prepared um, could easily take us into a million different directions. Yeah. I think this one's pretty <laughs> concise. And that's, uh, how did you become a science teacher? What led you into the classroom? Sure. So as many of these stories start with, starts with my high school biology teacher. I think further back, I always enjoyed science. And I think a component of that was I was always challenged by the idea of experiments and experimentation um, in a not cognitive dissonance, but like it gave me a bit of a headache, but a good headache. And so when I got to high school and I met Ms. Roberts, she is, she's still around. She's no longer teaching, but she uh, at that time was a very spunky, opinionated, hard hitting, um, a little bit more curt than I am now, but just a really strong, wonderful personality who had these amazing adventures and stories prior to her becoming a teacher that I just would sit and listen to. And she, to me, just like all my teachers, but she especially just felt like she knew so much. 
And I just remember getting, being, always being very excited about coming to, going to class for the topic, but also for her. And so that started me on a path of, of knowing that I really, of confirming that I really wanted to go into science. I thought for a very long time I wanted to go to veterinary school. And so that's the idea that I operated under for all of high school, for the most part, barring a short period of time. But I, I told my kids this all the time, is that I remember very distinctly sitting in class, staring at her board that had the assignments for bio and AP bio, which is the same subclasses I teach now. <laughs> um, I remember staring at the board and thinking, there is no way I could ever do this. And my reasoning was that I could never do this in my mind. I thought that teaching was doing the same thing six times in a row or five times in a row for her, for her course load and then AP bio or whatever it was. So in my mind, as a, you know, lowly freshman or 16 or however I was, whichever class I was in at the time, I remember thinking there's no way I could ever do this because I couldn't deal with the monotony. So that's a really cool thing that I love to reflect on forcefully in the classroom to my students every day. Not every day, but often enough that probably annoys them, um, which is just that you really never know what's going to happen. So Mm. I remember sitting there and being like, "Uh uh-uh, no way, no way, no how. Like, I didn't even consider it. So I got to University of Wisconsin-Madison thinking I wanted to go to veterinary school, figured out in the first semester that I... Really didn't want. I I went under animal sciences as my major, and I realized pretty early on I didn't want to be in that major, um, in that department specifically. It is a leading department. It's full of really great people, but it's pretty homogenous in its demographics, at least of professors, mostly all white men over the age of <laughs> fifty five. And I, as a spunky young eighteen year old who thought she knew the world had come to Madison with the knowledge and the desire to not be taught by the same demographic of people that I'd always been taught by. And so Mm. I sought out purposefully a different kind of looking department. And so I then settled on genetics partially because it was a small enough major, small enough department that I thought I would have a good experience. But then also I was like, you know what? I love those Punnett squares. Um, I loved him so much. I loved the science. I loved the math. It made sense to me. I liked the prediction component. I was like, this has got to be what a genetics major is about, right? Because again, I was a naive 18-year-old. Yep. And so I did that. I was in that department for a little bit. And then chemistry really started to kick my butt. And you know, I'm not sure what your listening body is, but if there's any students out there, Veterinary school actually has a lower acceptance rate than medical school. And I kind of looked at the the landscape. Besides the acceptance rates component, the job satisfaction or at least mental health component of it is really poor right now. And the student loan component of it is yeah. extremely high. And I was like, this ain't, this ain't the deal. So I sat and floundered a little bit in not knowing exactly what I wanted to do, which is very hard for me as a person. And <laughs> I was searching through majors and I came across the uh, life sciences communication major, which had previously been an agricultural journalism major at UW. And then they rephrased it or rebranded it or redesigned it. <laughs> and I had this like ah, epiphany moment of like, holy crap, this is this is so up my alley. And so I started to look at the major uh, requirements and components, but I was so in love with the people. (laughs) It's so silly to hear myself say this now, because I remember, I mean, considering where I am now, I was so in love with the combination of 
people and science and communicating that science to the people. Mm. Still, I had no thoughts of teaching in my head. And so for a while, I was a genetics and, and LSC double major. And then I eventually ended up switching to biology. And the reason for that was because I thought for a while that within LSC, I wanted to do a more of like a marketing focus, um, maybe work mm. for like a biotech firm or obviously in Wisconsin, we have a lot of agricultural and dairy and, and dairy genetics businesses up here. And I thought maybe I wanted to do that. And so I took a job in drumroll, the school of education um, <laughs> with a job title of marketing and IT, which it absolutely was not that it was poorly named, but essentially it was a program assistant position working for a couple of pre-college programs in the summer. And I started working them and working with all these people who were in the school of education and then teachers in the summer who would give up their time and get paid a lowly fee to teach kids during the summer. And another epiphany occurred, which was like, oh my God, these are, these are my people. And if you've ever had that moment of like finding yourself somewhere you never thought you were going to be, that was me. I was like, oh my God, like, how have I, how have I missed this? How is, how I, uh, you're naive as a college student. Like you're, I, I thought I knew the world. I thought I had it all figured out. And you just really, really don't. I had okay instincts about who I was and that's where I ended up. So at that time, UW was changing their science education major. I had thought, I, I, I had genuinely looked at the major requirements and I noticed that organic chemistry was not a requirement. <laughs> and I was not a great organic chemistry student but I remember thinking in my head, I don't want to graduate from UW with a degree in biology education without having taken organic chemistry or rather without that having mattered to me. If I'm going to mm. be advising kids on biology as a field, I want to have experienced a biology major. And I, like, I want to come from a place of, of truthfully knowing what that experience was like, as opposed to just talking about the course and what the what an organic chemistry class would have been like. Cause there's really no, no replacement for that experience. <laughs> so at that time, UW without telling me, of course, so secretively, um, they were actually redesigning their secondary ed program. And so like, honestly, the most perfect coincidental, you know, fate esque, if you believe in those things, timing ended up being that as I was getting ready to go into my senior year of undergrad, they announced that they were opening up this new program, which was going to be a 14-month master's program in curriculum and instruction. That was to include your teaching certification and also, besides your subject area certification, also ESL certification. And uh, I was like, okay, that's it. Like, I didn't apply anywhere else. I didn't go for anything else. If they hadn't accepted me, I would have. I had a couple of other things that I had in mind. Um, but I was like, sign seal delivered. I'm in. And... So that is how I, I rolled into it. I graduated with my my two undergrad degrees. I also, UW doesn't do made, uh, minors, we do certificates. And so I had a mm -hmm. certificate in education and educational services, I think it was. So essentially a minor in education. And so I rolled into graduation, did jump around at Camp Randall. If you know Wisconsin, we have a <laughs> end of the third quarter tradition of doing jump around. And so we jumped around on the field of Camp Randall. And then I had a month off and then I started graduate school, which was a full graduate course load and eventually full graduate course load and student teaching at the same time. 
Yeah, and it was a, it was a half year of student teaching. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it was absolutely baptism by fire. It was. We were the first cohort. It was a really awesome experiment for everyone. And it was a really cool mixture of people that had done what I had done. So I'd just come out of college and a whole group of people that had been out of school for a while and maybe, and a lot of them had had other, you know, obviously other careers, but careers very far away from education and had found their way back. And so it was this, it was this really cool, like potpourri bowl of people that were all trying to figure out how to how to be a teacher at different stages of lives and maturity levels and ideas and inspirations. So. Wow. And, and then you get your job and you have been at the same, you're rolling into your fourth year teaching in the same school. So after you left there, you found your spot and it it has been a a good fit for you. It has been. Yeah. I, uh, I actually, this is my, my, how I got to Reedsburg is like, it's a, I, I, it's a great story. It's a, it's a short story. Basically, I had, you know, it's, it's interviewing season time. I think this was, um, I can honestly look at my phone because I'm that sappy person that still has the voicemails. Um, but I am like mid-May, mid to late May and set up the interview. I went up there. It was Monday morning, I think 9 a.m., maybe 10 a.m. And I drove up there and I, you know, you plug the address into Google Maps and... So I live in Madison, Reedsburg is an hour north of Madison. And I, you know, had plotted all these options on this map and an hour was my, my radius, my max radius. And I drove up there and Google maps took me on an incredibly stupid way. And, (laughs) and so driving up, I was like, there's no way I'm taking this job. Like it is at the end of my radius. All signs point to no. I am driving through the middle of nowhere. At this point, I'm driving a 1999 um, Volvo V70 station wagon. Like, <laughs> cruise control was questionable. Like, it, there was a lot of there were a lot of question marks in my world at this point. And so I was like, I like, there's all signs point to no. And then I get up there, and I had a great time. Like, I enjoyed myself with this interview. My principal did it does interviews in a slightly different way than I would say most principals do. And I was like, Oh my God, this is, this is the fit. Like I've never interviewed and felt so like, yeah, okay. Like I could walk into, I could walk into this every single day. And so I left it and I took a different way home. That was much better. And I got a call at would have been like one thirty or so, maybe two. <laughs> and I screened it because that's what you do. And um, then I called my principal back and he offered me the job. And I said that I needed to have a little bit of time to think about it because, you know, the like first interview, first offer, first time, (laughs) like, I'm like, okay, hold on. And so I went and did one other interview and I had another interview scheduled for that Friday. He said to me on the phone, he goes, I want this, I want this done by Monday, which is our school board meeting because he's a little bit business operational at times and it, it worked for him. So I was like, Oh God. So I had my second interview and I did not feel any of the same things. It was a going to be a much shorter commute. It was going to be middle school, which I wasn't really going for, but I didn't feel it at all. And so thankfully I didn't get and get an offer. So I didn't have to deal with it saying no to that. But then the next day I had another interview scheduled and I woke up and I was like, you know what? I just don't feel like driving to this other interview. And so I called them and canceled it. And I called uh, my principal, Rob, and said, I'm going to do it. So I was, 
I mean, realistically, I'd probably made up my mind that Monday, but you know, it's at the same point you're like, I can't really just say yes to the first, first option. So, so then I have yeah. still been there. Yeah. It, it, um, has been a really great fit. I work with, I think one of my favorite parts is that I work with the widest range of kids, a, a, a particularly wide socioeconomic group of kids. I have taught kids who are homeless and I have taught kids whose parents are very wealthy and own large, large businesses in town mm-hmm. and, and everyone in between. And so it's, you know, I have to figure out to how to make my classes adaptable to every single kid, which is not unlike any other teacher, but it's been a really cool experience figuring out how to make my message packageable and marketable to, to every kid. It's neat that you feel like it, that that first job interview ended up like serendipitously working out that this was the kind of fit you want, you know, right. that you could get. Yeah. Because I know a lot of, I mean, myself, I worked in, uh, this is, I'm working in my fourth school (laughs) and I worked at three different schools in my first four years and, and knew that, you know, this, I I learned, I learned what I liked and didn't like. Mm -hmm. And it was the school that I'm currently teaching in that I've like, I finally got figured out that fit and that sort of, and that like when I spent time there and. And even then, because I had been in other schools, I didn't necessarily trust it. Right. <laughs> so I can understand your hesitancy, but it's such a it's such a good story to have found that place. Yeah, and I think it has to do. It's it's such it's it's so multidimensional. It's not anything that you can really encapsulate in an interview. I mean, like I I really do think I got lucky. Like I think I had really good vibes within that interview, but then you know, you're not, you're not fully sure until it's April and everyone's like sludging through the mud and you're like, okay, yeah, like everyone, everyone is here with me. And it's, you know, it doesn't have to be, I I know that my situation wouldn't work for every teacher, but that's okay because, you know, I don't, I don't work for every kid. Right. But, um, it's such a, like I said before, like we're in such a people facing career that every single time you, you have like an instance and you're faced with this challenge, you have to, it's almost like you have to re- reevaluate back to like where your values are and where you're going to go in, in that interaction. Like, and, and I think that depends on your environment and what your school supports you with and where you can push them and, and make them grow. That's a little bit of what my, I would say that I've, I've been a little bit of a, a questioner at times. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that's why my principal and I get along pretty well, uh, as I think you identified that in my interview that I, I have opinions and I can back them up and I can also disagree and, but then also, you know, lose my opinions and, and have and gain different ones. So it's interesting which things your school and an environment, school environment will go to bat for and which ones they won't. So it's, I think it's just figuring out which ones you're signed up to take on or, or to just go along with. Yeah. Well, and part of that fit is a fit that allows people to learn yeah. and not everyone learns and that's in the same situation. Yeah. Um, so I, I think I'm going to transition this into sort of the role of technology 
in your teaching and working with your students. Mm-hmm. And it, it's very interesting. I have very interesting interactions with different teachers and, and some schools have like really intense like uh, social media policies yeah. about like what you can and can't do and how you post things and how yeah. you don't post things. And other schools are completely oblivious yeah. <laughs> to the fact that social media exists yeah. Um, yeah. and there's a, a continuum all there. But you definitely, I mean, I, you go to your class website and I found there's a lot of interesting things in there. You know, I saw the Google One certified educator, which I found to be, I like a dozen questions about that. Um, but then also <laughs> yeah. you put you put your Twitter and your Instagram accounts yeah. right on your class yeah. website. And so I guess this speaks to sort of, you mentioned values before, how you value digital communication, but Mm -hmm. how do you view the role of technology with working with your students? Yeah. Let's see where to start here. (laughs) My, I've always been very technologically savvy. Both my parents were involved in technology, digital, audio, visual, video sales. Um, As I was growing up, my dad worked for a number of different companies. My mom worked for Fujifilm. So I'm very comfortable with technology. I always have been. I've always been that go-to person. The the life sciences communication major, that in particular had a pretty strong communications focus, obviously. And Mm -hmm. so one of the classes that I took was about social media for the sciences. And that was a more of like a, I'm going to shout out Don Stanley right now, if he's going to listen to this. He was my professor at that time and he was absolutely wonderful. Um, and also, um, Dietram, um, Shafla is another, uh, professor in this major. Dietram's works focused on like how science itself is communicated. And a couple of his papers have been focused on the use of social media, but also as a broader scope, like how can science reach into not actually specifically the classroom, but just reach into the public sector. You know, you think about like firewalls in front of published papers, you think about, you know, what if you were to go to like a a scientific talk, or like a a public talk given by a professor, what sort of wording and language is used in that? How do like, how is the public supposed to access science? So that's a big component of was a big component theories of how the public supposed to access science of my undergraduate work. Mm. So within Don Stanley's class, I had set up this Twitter. So this is my, if you search for me on Twitter and there's, I don't know if my, my mom and I have the same name. That's a story for a different day, but I, there's, <laughs> there's two Twitters of me on there and one is a private one and that is for private reasons. And then there is my public one. And so my public one, I set up well before I got to Reedsburg, but then in my, I don't know if I talked about it in my interview, but in like the first couple of weeks of onboarding, in, I know for sure in, in our sit down with the principals like here, what the academic policies are, it is one of our school policies that the high school teachers have a Twitter and, huh. and are supposed to use the Twitter. And so I was like, oh, ho, ho. like I am so at home here. Um, like I have felt like I follow all these accounts. I retweet and I was retweeting science and, and ideas and things well before I got to Reedsburg. And then my principal was like, no, do that more. And I was like, okay. This is great. And then I don't know exactly where I'd gotten the inspiration, but I had set up this this Instagram actually while I was still student teaching. And if you if, if you scroll all the way back into the Instagram, you'll find some pictures actually from me from my student teach my student teaching time. And that was another that was a bit of a I don't want to say an exploration, but I was like, hey, I'm gonna try this. And 
it has been, my Instagram was one of the, the best things I've ever done. I used it a whole heck of a lot more my first and second years than I did this past year. I think the, you know, the third year drag hit me a little bit last year of just a little bit of a sense of like overwhelm, but in an odd way, like my, my inertia was down. Like I didn't have the super nerves of first and second year. So my third year I was like, okay, I'm settled in and okay. But anyway, so my, my first couple of years I would have these kids who would be like, wait, you're on Instagram. And then we would follow each other and we would have this whole interaction. And one of my favorite things that I ever started doing was taking pictures of kids and putting it on my Instagram and tagging them because no one wants anything more but to feel like they belong. And when you, well, when, when I would take these pictures of kids, especially kids who maybe didn't really love science, but would highlight and promote and congratulate them on whatever it is that they did, or even just say like, you're being goofy today and I'm enjoying it. I think it really started to give kids a feeling of belonging in the classroom. At least like, I want to be on social media. Um, you know, they after I would take a picture and post a kid the next day, all these kids would be like, ah, how come I'm not on your Instagram? And then there would be this weird challenge of like, we'll do something cool. And, and it didn't even really need to be cool. There was, I know there's a goofy picture up there of two kids who one of them took one of my DNA models and turned it into like a circular DNA and put it on his head. And he's like, I'm the DNA king. And, you know, just goofy things like that, you know, it highlights the fun you can have in the classroom that's beyond just the, the class stuff. So I really support it. Don't get me wrong. I think that social media is going to have a really, has already had had and is going to, I can't wait for the papers in, in 25 years. I can't wait for the studies, <laughs> the long range studies that are going to be done on kids of this generation. I am so glad uh, I am not growing up with this access to social media. I'm not that old. I just turned 26, but I am so glad I'm not dealing with what they have to deal with. And I'm glad I'm not a parent right now, honestly, because <laughs> it's, it's crazy out there. And I think we need to teach them how to, how to view it and how to do it appropriately, obviously. But I really enjoy it as a form of communication. I, I go on Instagram not only for kids and to celebrate kids now, but also to, I have a lot of teacher connections on Instagram that I get lesson plans from. And I've bought lessons off of teachers pay teachers from Instagram and that sort of thing. The Google, I'll address the Google thing. <laughs> the Google certified. Yeah. Teacher, yeah. Uh, I, like I said, I'm, I'm very technologically savvy. It's, uh, it's something that I get on with pretty well. And so I went to a conference my, my school, um, is very, generous with professional development. And um, we have a lot of grants that we receive from our, um, from the state and some state educational agencies. And um, I went to a Google boot camp two years ago, and um, over the course of two days, and then I took my Google certified educator exam for a whole $10. It was really fun. I like apparently like being tested. And um, <laughs> you just had to go and they told you to do certain tasks and you had to go do them. It was like you were a student. So you had to create a, a Google Slides presentation and then you had to create a Sheets presentation and you had to calculate something and then you had to, you saved it in this folder and it got evaluated by some Google person and then they tell you you're certified. So um, it was it's a, definitely a little bit badgy. Like I had, <laughs> I was able to do the things before I went to the boot camp for the most part. 
which was good to, you know, to confirm my skills. But I just threw the, the, the little badge up there because, you know, you have a website about yourself. You got to flaunt it sometimes, right? Yeah. The Google certification thing popped up to me because I literally have done all but like the last lesson in the baseline training and sort of what you were saying, like I could kind of do all the stuff. Yeah. Not to say there wasn't value in there. I did pick up a couple of right. tips and that sort of thing. And I just was doing it during the school year and like just ran out of bandwidth in time. And yeah. I was like, well, maybe I'll get back to this at some point. Yeah. So I was like, oh yeah, I almost finished that. Just don't do it. It's, yeah. it's a, honestly, I had fun doing it in the exam. There's, it was like a pr- lab practical basically. Yeah, I may go. I may go back to do it and and pop in in August if I. It just it just not just not high on my priority list. Yeah. It's just one of those things that I think I could probably knock out, you know, in a, a Saturday morning if I decided that was the thing I was going to do. Um, I want to come back to the to the social media thing because you said something that really like you really sort of voiced my biggest feeling about social media, and I think <laughs> probably could hear my frustration. Um, my school is one where. I would say at best we have a uh, laissez-faire attitude towards social media. Mm-hmm. There are teachers who have social media presence, but there is no consistent set of rules or guidance or encouragement yeah. or that sort of thing. And some of the teachers in the school, I have very regular interactions with, very positive interactions with um, on social media. It's, it's particularly on Twitter because that's the social media that I can consistently engage yeah. in. <laughs> it's yeah. it's not to say that Facebook doesn't exist and Instagram doesn't exist. Right. It's just like, I, I think that what you find is that you will find a way and it's sort of a combination of like your network yep. and what, and what works for your personality. Yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. I think I do all three, but I use all three very differently um, mm-hmm. for the most part, at, at least from a, from a school professional sense, you know, Twitter is the sort of the short and sweet. It's like a picture it's, it's sort of like a one-off Instagram is where the kids are. Kids aren't, kids aren't really on Twitter. And then Facebook I use obviously for personal stuff, but then also that's where the AP bio community really lives. And so that's, that's where I get into that, but it absolutely is, is just a feel thing. And we have teachers. So our district really promotes, really promotes social media. We're part of something called Social School for EDU. And it's a Wisconsin-based organization. One of my good friends, Heidi Feller, is is very um, involved in it. And they go around and they help schools develop a social media presence um, and develop like a hashtag to use and develop like, how do you how do you have an event like graduation or a, I don't know, like a field trip to somewhere? How do you, how do you capitalize on that moment to share good news about the school? So our hashtag is Reedsburg Pride. Mm. And so I literally, before we got started, took a selfie on my phone, which I'll post after this, of <laughs> the me and my screen of my computer that includes like our notes. And I'm going to tweet it. And then I'll get, for sure, get retweeted. And unless they're going to be sassy, like I'll for sure get retweeted by like my principal, probably a couple of colleagues. And then like the school district will get, will retweet it. And so it's just this very sharing, like it's almost guaranteed if you post something like the school district's going to retweet it or make a comment of like, look at what our teachers are doing. One of my colleagues went to a, a chemistry conference. And so she took a selfie of herself with, you know, one of those like banner things that people can hold up. And, and she is someone that I don't know how your colleagues are, but like someone that maybe never would have really gotten into social media if it wasn't for someone really promoting it towards her, like nearing retirement just someone that maybe wouldn't have like jumped on the 
like, let's get on social media. Like, it's just not a thing that everyone really wants to get into. But the support that we have uh, staff members wise, and this like a consistent message of like, if you go and do things, tell us and we'll be proud of you publicly. Like, that's not a hard concept to get behind. Yeah. And I think that the, my frustration is that uh, it's kind of, it fits in the same mode as like schools that have like lockdown cell phone policies sure. and like, and have lockdown social media policies. It, it to me pretends like we're preparing students for a world where cell phones and social media doesn't exist. Right. And to me, like to have a world where cell phones and social media exists and to be a place of learning yep. that is preparing students to for the future. But also um, for me, and I, this is something that I've come to grips with the last few years, so much of the your initial identity formation um, as a person yep. takes place in high school. Oh, yeah. and, and as a result, like if you can have modeled for you appropriate uses of technology, mm -hmm. appropriate guideline setting, places where um, you see people modeling like professional, you know, a professional outward facing yeah. social media. <laughs> my friend uh, Ryan Reardon refu sometimes refers to my social media as a highly curated life. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think of it like a resume. You know what I mean? Like that's, it, that's what your yeah. presence is. Yeah. And it, I mean, it, it is one of those things where people, I connect with people of a variety of stripes um, on social media. And yeah, it is my professional. So, and there's not a huge difference between, you know, me as a person and me as a professional um, at this point in my life. Sure. But that is, you know, and I do put up occasionally non-teacher type things, little goofy things, but I am circumspect about what I post on social media. Mm -hmm. And that's because I do know that I have current and former students that follow me and, and other people out in the community. And, you know, I don't want one of my like collaborators, college collaborators who I've, you know, been in their lab and worked with them and they see me post something like grotesque or offensive or whatever. Like, I don't want them to see something like that. Why would I want to do that? Why would I want to hurt? You know, I hate to say it, but that you're, you're, your brand. Like right. we are all yeah. a bit of a brand yeah. and our social media is a very big part of how people who don't see you every single day to understand you, yeah. that's how people will get a, a quick view of what you are and what you represent. Right. So yeah, it's, I, I think I, I am, it's super encouraging to hear schools having outreach and even an entire state having a, you know, having that social school school for EDU seems like a, a really positive step in the right direction to help students navigate this world that they're, you know, going to be into. Yeah, we actually, like I had our AP history teacher and he and I took kids on a school trip to Boston last year. And both at that time and as well as at graduation later that year, I got to take over the Instagram <laughs> and do an Instagram story of the whole entire day. And it just, it serves, it serves the community. It serves the kids and it promotes so much of a like, Hey, look at all the cool things that we're doing and look at the fun that we're having. And look, this is a place where you all want to be um, and you all want to be featured. And I think that again, just touches on that belonging. And then once, cause I kind of trial ran that she had our, our social media person, Heidi kind of had to get that going and, and, you know, putting it in my hands was a big step. And then a few months later, homecoming week, this past school year, 
the kids then took over the, like they used my phone. I literally gave my phone, which I mean, I know some teachers might just be totally floored by that, but I literally gave my phone to a student to run around during a part of the like homecoming day and post things on the school district story. Extremely public, you know what I mean? Like we have thousands of followers. I mean, majority are parents, many kids. And I handed over my personal $100 device to a student to go run around. And, you know, those are cool experiences for kids where they feel like they get to really take responsibility and capitalize and share in the story of what they're doing. And so it's, it's such a, I totally agree. It's like, it's not going away. Social media is not going away. And so the more that we pretend like we live in this vacuum, you know, the more we're, I think we're ostriching ourselves, we're just hmm. sticking our head in the sand and pretending like it's gonna, gonna go away. Um, and it's a, it's a, it's a tough, tough fight to fight. It's a tough place to be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And well, but if you have leadership in the building that helps you with that, um, that that's, as opposed to being told, no, don't post anything. Um, oh yeah, no. Nope. I, I think at least at least the, you know, the culture is there where there is the potential to have those conversations. Um, yeah. So, yeah, and I I completely understand what you're saying. Like, um, <laughs> I send kids out on um, job shadowing um, trips all around. You know, really basically central to eastern Massachusetts, um, and they all have my cell phone number. Yeah. And mm-hmm. there are teachers who, when they, some teachers, when they find out that the kids have your cell phone number, like they like freak out. Yep. And I'm like, they're just, they, first of all, they don't call anybody. Right. <laughs> they don't know how to talk on a cell no. phone. So like, they're going to maybe send me a text. And the reason they're going to send me a text is they're lost. Right. Um, and if they call me, it's because they're really lost. Yep. So yep. yeah, it, it's, <laughs> and that's happened to me before, but like where they, they do that. And I, it's a, you know, there are superficial ways you can show trust or pretend like you're showing trust. Yeah. And then there's authentic ways from the kid's eyes how you can show them yeah. that you trust them. Absolutely. And giving them your cell phone, or as you said, giving them your cell phone uh, to do something with is is the most authentic way of showing you trust them. Yeah. There is. Yep. For sure. <laughs> so. All right. Well, I think I'm going to switch gears here and get into talking a little bit about the AP biology redesign. Um, I don't know if you've had much of a chance to look at it. I'm interested in hearing your thoughts about the fact that the AP biology course has changed. And if you have any initial thoughts about what you've seen this summer as they've been starting to roll things out. Yeah, I think they're continuing to roll in a really good direction. So I, I Definitely took a look at it before the school year ended and then kind of packaged, you know, you package your school brain up a little bit. Mm -hmm. And then I'm kind of unpacking it as, you know, as we're rolling back into August. So when I took on the job, my only understanding of AP biology was what I had done in AP biology, obviously, as a student. And so that was pre the first redesign. Mm -hmm. And the best way I could describe that, I don't know how long you've been teaching for, but it was like a mini MCAT. It was... It was very memorization based. It was very like in what stage of the Krebs cycle does X happen? Yep. It was, you know, just very wordy, very, very based on just memorization of things. Um, no other way yeah. to put it. And I, I taught it. Yeah. Um, I described it as the fire hose. you did six days of lecture you fire host content of lecture at the students just to make sure they picked it all up you then did a cookbook lab that really you didn't need to do because like it was so obvious that 
really any smart student would know what was going in and what was coming out. And really they had just to be familiar with the dirty dozen labs that they had. And you didn't really need to critically think to do those labs or to understand those labs. You could be told what your understanding needed to be from those And you can predict what you could have predicted what the results were by the time you got done with them. Oh, you could have predicted them before Before you. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 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 So, so yeah, I've taught, I taught that system. I've been teaching AP long enough for that. So, um, so now you come in and, and you get the four big ideas yeah. as a teacher. And what was that like? Well, I got the four big ideas and I was like, okay, sure. But I was mostly like amazed and so excited and very ready to dive into the practices. Like I think mm-hmm. that the science practices, I think that through graduate school, my beloved professor, my my main my main rock, she, uh, she was pretty anti AP, and I think that that came from a place of the like just the focus on test taking, the focus on teach the test, which is I think we live not even in like a, a teeter totter, but like I don't know some sort of just like wobbly wobbly dock out in the middle of the water. Like I think that it's the the course is more than just one dynamic. The concept mm-hmm. of AP is more than just one dynamic, but my what I really liked when I first dug into it was I'm like, oh, this is graduated NGSS. And mm-hmm. that kind of like put it all together. I was never a kid that could memorize. Like the last thing I think I really ever truly memorized in science, which I have also maybe not all, but mostly since forgotten, were like the bones of the skeleton. <laughs> like that and that was in eighth grade. <laughs> like I was never a memorize and regurgitate kind of kid. And I loved science for the mystery and for the stories and the meaning. And I never liked it for the memorization. And so when I got given AP Bio as a first year teacher, I was like, oh my God, like I'm going to have to know the steps of the Krebs cycle again, you know, because I hadn't done that for two years or whatever, how long it had been. And I'm going to have to like know every single intricate fact of this, which you do to an extent to teach it. But at the same time, the testing of that component now is such a overview and the deeper driving components of the exam and of the course are so much more in the practices land, knowing that Mm -hmm. like what kids are actually going to walk away with is skills. They're not going to walk away with the steps or every single organelle. Let's go do organelles, hit on those. Like they're not going to walk away with every single role of an organelle. And I don't really care about them knowing every single role of an organelle. (laughs) I would like them to be able to synthesize information. I'd like them to be able to figure out what someone's claim is and tell me where they go wrong in their evidence and their reasoning. Like I want them to be able to use this class as a jumping off point for them as an individual that maybe goes into science. Like this class doesn't have to be just for someone who is wanting to go into biology. And I think that's what my favorite part is. And it also scares the crap out of me because it's so hard to tell kids, you don't need to memorize this because this, the like skill-based stuff is so much harder to, not harder to teach, but it's harder. It's you can't fake it, and so that's mm. where I think it it's it's significantly harder for kids. I think the redesign from this from you know the last redesign to this redesign, I think they're moving in a great direction. I think we're parsing down the things that are not as not necessarily not as important, but like 
what are the topics that we need to have kids learn about to get a completer picture of biology within this course? If they go on, great, they're going to get them again. If they don't go on, that's okay. This is what, you know, this is what they've been exposed to. So I think, you know, a lot of people were really upset about taking uh, body systems out. Mm -hmm. But just like with the previous redesign, it doesn't mean that you can't teach body systems. It just means that like the full memorization focus on all these body systems is not going to be specifically tested. You can still talk about cell communication and signal transduction with the immune system, but you just don't have to go into every single component of it or digestive system. Like, I think it's just, you get to, you get to pick, they're giving us more creative license in my mind. Huh. It's interesting that you think that the new design is gives more creative license because I was um, my my fear and I like wholly agree with your interpretation of both the old AB and the focus on practices and like thinking like a scientist as opposed to the content. But I think my biggest fear about the redesign Mm -hmm. is the suggested units and that it might lead to almost an over focus on like going back to a unit structure of these are the things that go on this test and these are the things that go on this test. And even though the language is very practice oriented, I'm worried if it actually is a swing away from creativity. Uh, Not that it's prescriptive, not that the AP has said, oh, you've got to teach it in these unit structure. I do think that they're Right now, one of the things that's so cool about AP is if you talk to 10 different AP teachers, they all kind of do their own thing. And I wonder if having a set of suggested units or even just a unit roadmap may actually be a swing away from creativity for people because they feel like, oh, this is the roadmap I should follow. I mean, maybe. I think that you... I, so being a younger teacher, I have a good number of connections with kids who are taking AP biology who aren't in my classes. Mm-hmm. I'm involved in one of the questions, you you know, like what, are, what else do I do? I, I have horses, so I'm involved in a youth equestrian organization. And so mm-hmm. from that, when kids find out I'm an AP bio teacher, the first thing that they do is they complain to me about their AP bio teacher. <laughs> and, um, you know, because they're all just the worst or, or they, you know. They're really excited about them. But, you know, sometimes they have some complaints and sometimes they're fair and understandable. And I certainly am never going to go down and say that I'm the best teacher, the best AP bio teacher ever. But sometimes what comes out of these kids' mouths is that people are really struggling to organize the course and to develop curriculum. And um, I know, well, yes, I, you know, in the redesign, you know, with the course framework, it, it's not, it's not, it, it is curriculum, but it's not actual activities and stuff. But I think that whereas, I mean, for for you, for someone who's been in the game as long as you have, like, I think you could definitely, obviously, you're going to see it as like a, a suggested, you know, a bit of a loss of creativity. But I think it's going to be just more of structuring and scaffolding for the people that really are just like brand spanking new and very lost, like the people who don't get to go to like an APSI, a summer institute, and mm. and get to experience and find out and hear from people who are doing it about how they can do it. You know, people who are in really far away places. When I went to my APSI, there were teachers from like Alaska and Hawaii. I went to mine at Carleton College in, in Minnesota. And I was just floored that, you know, 
schools are sending people this distance and they are obviously in the very far minority that the majority of schools probably wouldn't be willing to send teachers in such far off places to an APSI. And so I think that this is giving them that framework, but at, at its core, like I think your course's success is built off of you and your development as the, your, your development of the course as the teacher and as the, the captain of the ship that's running it and the support behind you from the school. So I don't look at it as a, as a loss of creativity, but I can see, I, like, I'm going to, I'm going to change some things, but some things I'm not going to change. Like I start with intro to science and then I start with evolution mm-hmm. in AP and that, because I think for AP, it's so hard to not circle back every single unit to an evolutionary piece because that's what the entire exam is because that's what the entire field is. And so I think it's, it's tough to put it at the end, but I also understand it to put it at the end, but I didn't do that my first year. My first year, I did it very much in this order, looking at it now. Uh, I did it with evolution, you know, second ish, uh, you know, nature science first, but then, then evolution last year um, and the year prior. And that worked a lot better. So. Yeah, I'm curious to see if the other thing that you had mentioned about sort of this is like a a step up from NGSS. One of the things that I find I found really nice about the four big ideas, and they're still there. The four big ideas right. are the backbone. Right. Was that it? It felt to me, and and truth be told, I am in the process of organizing my curriculum with my colleague who I work with in AP um, into storylines. Yeah, like that is the direction we're going. Yep. I I guess my concern is that I feel like that was something a lot of people were talking about. <laughs> that wow, this is just like NGSS. Oh, there's four big ideas. Oh, there's these four sort of domains of NGSS mm-hmm. for life science. What are the comparable storylines? And having talked to Jason Crean, I know yeah. that there are teachers who who use his storylines yeah. on the AP level, and they just beef them up a little bit yeah. to do that. And again, sort of from my standpoint of creativity, like I thought that was like, oh, that's a cool way of of going through it. I 100% agree with you. Um, I do not think that any teacher who looks at the curriculum and says, "Great, they've told me exactly what to do. <laughs> All my curriculum work is done. Like, oh, good. Let's I don't go have to plan it. or anything." Like. Yeah, those are not like those those folks are not necessarily going to be dialing it up. But I also have talked to a lot of young teachers who I mean, like when you say in your first year teaching, you're teaching AP mm-hmm. like that. Oh, like, are they nuts? Like, I mean, clearly you go to a good, you teach at a good school and like you you had good background, but it's such a hard course That's to teach so to be teaching it right right out of the gate. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, <laughs> I was. <laughs> I, yeah. I asked my principal in the interview, he, he point blank goes, so AP bio, this, like this position includes AP bio. Are you ready to teach that? And I was like, I would like a year of becoming a teacher before teaching it. Um, and he goes, but would you feel comfortable teaching it? And what he was getting at was curriculum wise, what I feel like I had the background. And so it took a little bit to to figure out that's what he was asking. And I was like, Oh, yeah, no, I have the background. But I just want to figure out how to be a teacher first. And he was like, Oh, sure, sure, sure. And then a month later, they're like, Oh, we're signing up for the APSI, like, pack your bags. <laughs> I'm like, Okay. And, and it ended up being great. I actually had all I had a very small class, but all my students passed that year, which was a phenomenal accomplishment. And just crazy. And mostly, I mean, you as a teacher, you're like, mostly that wasn't, that couldn't have been all due to me, but maybe it was a little bit. I don't know. You know, you never want to like go into the details of that. But yeah, I, as a, 
as a first year teacher, you know, you, you I definitely, it, even in my place now looking at this, I'm like, oh my God, like, you know, the, the breakdown of this and how segmented this, you know, each, each specific topic looks, it, it looks insurmountable for sure. Mm, yeah. I, I, I was in my like 14th year teaching. Um, I think when I was my first year of teaching AP. Yeah. Um, so just to give the context sure. of that, and yeah. I thought it was a hard course to teach. Um, so yeah, I, I do feel like for those teachers who are young teachers who go in, this is a much more transparent package yes. about, yeah. to get you started. Mm-hmm. So I am, and I, and I also know the, a lot of the people who are involved in the background behind this. And I really honestly think that from conversations I've had with a variety of different stakeholders in AP, that has been one of the biggest criticisms of AP is that like, the the college board wasn't providing enough background and support and you know they're going to be rolling out some you know resources for teachers to do it and also if you didn't have a network around you to help TJP yeah we have the online communities and and that sort of thing but when there's so many other things going on not having a a simple or a fairly simple roadmap yeah. to follow made the made the 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 beginning process of starting a TJP um, really yeah. really hard and so yeah I'm I'm curious to see where we are in two or yeah. three years because well, um, sure be I think I think time. it's, it's going to flush out <laughs> uh, gosh I hope not uh, I the thing that's crushed me is that my entire course was organized around the essential knowledge oh, statements yeah. which I've been throwing out and rewording and reorganizing and it's they don't one to one over they've tripled quadrupled the number of yeah. essential knowledge statements. Yeah. There used to be. They've just changed the grain size of the whole yeah. course. So the, I've been doing a lot of relabeling um, and and like translating the old yeah. to the new. And there are some people who've done some work like that. But yeah, the way I taught the course and the way we had it organized doesn't translate super well. And so that's going to be sort of an unpacking and reworking thing I have to do over the next mm-hmm. few months. Um, so I, I think, you know, a year from now, I'm going to feel a lot more right. comfortable, but. Well, you know, <laughs> yeah, to give you credit, like this is the sort of the second time you've really had to do this. And I mean, the first time, sure, I'm, I'm sure it was like just massive, but then, yeah. you know, you're doing it a second time. For me, I'm like, eh, you know, it's no big, it's not as much of a big deal because for me, I'm like, uh, everything changes always so far for me, you know, I mean, and yeah. everything changes consistently, but, you know, over the course of more of a career, you know, little changes they they don't they sort of just smooth over for me four years in everything has changed so much just all the time that I just roll you know it's a little bit more of just rolling with the bumpy road yeah so I guess the the best way of describing it is that I know what I want to do (laughs) to make the course what I want it to be and so taking time to relabel my course it's not busy work. It's um, making sure that I have good alignment with the yeah. learning objectives and making sure that I'm not wildly outside the bounds of what is essential for my students mm-hmm. to see as I help them have their stories and narratives. And I think there's enormous value. I think that the the task verb page alone in the new yeah. CED is, is worth yep. the redesign. Like, I am like the fact they relabel everything. It's a pain in the butt. I've got to relabel all my homeworks. I got to relabel all my learning objectives. That's fine. That that task verb page and then the guidelines for their new FRQs, those changes are super nice. And I I think that from a clarity standpoint, I'm going to be able to do amazing Mm -hmm. things like that. But what it means is this summer, I feel like the college board picked my priorities of what I'm working (laughs) on. Yeah. (laughs) I didn't. Like I'm not writing, like there's curriculum I want to write that I, 
I don't, I don't have as, quite as much time yeah. to do because I need to make sure that I'm aligning. I'm aligning instead yeah. of writing. And so um, that's that when my frustration comes out, it yeah. comes there. All right. So we're, we're deep into it. So I'm going to start getting us towards the exit. So what, what are you looking for? You've got your whole career in front of you. So, but in the short term, in the next few years, what are you looking forward to in your class? Um, I'm really excited actually for my AP program, my room, which at our school, for the most part in the past few years, the the, the rooms, the, the courses have been taught in specific rooms, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Like like the teachers that were in the room taught these courses. And my room, which pretty much had been biology and AP bio, at one point, a poor teacher that had to teach bio, AP bio, and chemistry. But for the most part, it's just been bio and AP bio. It has been a bit of a revolving door. And so my my first year of teaching, when I got the roster. My, my roster of kids was 10, nine showed up on the first day. And then I had nine throughout the first semester. And then it went down to seven. Those two, they were drops only because they started taking a CNA class at our local tech college. And it was at the Mm -hmm. same time as, as AP bio was. And so they just literally could not physically do it or feasibly do it. Um, but I was like, you're still going to CNA school. So like, who am I going to be, you know, I'm not going to be that guy and be upset about it. So I had seven. And then the next year I had 16. And then this year I had 16. And then this coming year, I have 40 students signed up for AP Bio. Nice. And so it's split into two sections. And, you know, kid, there's going to be some kids that are going to drop. I, I haven't sent out my little summer assignment thing yet, which is not the the hardest thing in the entire world, but it's still something that reminds kids that there's there's school at the end of the summer. But I'm really proud of the fact that what I've done over the past couple of years has let kids know that AP Bio isn't just for the small group of really, really strong seniors who want to go on to mm-hmm. biology, medical school, the science fields, or the ones that are just sort of racking up AP science classes. <laughs> Last year, like this current, you know, it's previous year, I had a student who I had had as a sophomore and he was is on the autism spectrum and receives special education services. And he took the class and we modified, he didn't take the AP exam, but we modified a really cool exam in place of that as his final exam as a senior where he did a, like an engineering project for me and, and engineered some different protein models using like household materials. I had one of our English language learners uh, in my class this year. And I had a couple of other students who had zero, who have zero interest in going into the sciences. And that hasn't been the case. And so going forward in this coming year, I have a lot of kids who are returning that I had, that I've already taught. A lot of seniors who are taking the class purely because they just want to hang out with me again. And so it's a little (laughs) bit of a... uh, a goal of mine to help them figure out as early on as I possibly can that this is a course that they can succeed in and they can receive college credit in as long as they're willing to put in the work for it, but that it doesn't require them to necessarily fall in love with biology. Like I, that's not necessarily one of my goals for kids, which is probably pretty different than most teachers. Like you can be respectful and understanding of the concept of something without really liking it. That's a lot of what college is, learning from people and maybe learning about classes that you necessarily don't want to take. And so I think that 
growing that and growing, helping my colleagues. I, we're reintroducing AP Enviro to our school. One of my colleagues who will be going into his second year of teaching is taking that class on. So I'm, I'm excited to help him grow with that. I also find a lot of, I really enjoy mentoring. So I actually, last year I was a mentor for my district for another biology teacher. We had two new science teachers last year. And this year we have an, another new biology teacher. And so I'll be a mentor again this year. So I'm really looking forward to that experience as well. So there, yeah, there's that. Nice. I, I in, in, a, in a really great possible possibility, I would really like to develop another course of a, a, a science communication. I've, I've thrown on the idea of calling it like science and society or science, science in your daily life or something like that, but have it be like a topics in biology with a ethics and maybe like an ethics and history and communication piece for it. So potentially the kids who are interested in the field, but don't necessarily want to take the advanced science courses, but would like to maybe look at science through like a historical perspective or, you know, a current day if we're looking at, you know, CRISPR, GMOs, or in our, in our state with a lot of farming and agriculture, you know, organic farming, things like that. So maybe evaluate and, and, and develop something some course material materials for that. And I have a lot of freedom. Another reason why I love my position. I have a lot of freedom to develop those sorts of things. So those are some goals and ideas. Neat. I I mean, I, the four going from, you know, 10 to 40 is a, is an amazing growth in AP. I teach in a big school and we are growing up. We'll be at 125. Wow. We're signed up wow. right now. Um, but we were historic. I mean, I think when I, my first year we had 96 yeah. <laughs> and, and then we actually shrunk yeah. for a while. We were, I think we were down around 80 um, last uh-huh. year. Um, but we we're usually in that somewhere between, you know, mid nineties and 80. And so we've never had over a hundred students take mm-hmm. AP, but we're, bu- we're bubbling up um, <laughs> as well right? next year. There's yeah. two teachers. Yeah. But yeah, I think that my hope, you know, I don't, I mean, you never know why kids are signing up. I, um, I think part part of it is definitely like I talk to kids and they're like kids I taught in, you know, my my first year bio courses and like they're looking and they're excited to sign up and and take the yeah. course again. And they're like, oh, I hope you get you. And I'm like, yeah, you, yeah exactly. <laughs> um, I might let you down, though, because I might not be. It's, you might not be what you think it is. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Well, but they also may not get me. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's two of us, so so they may not get me. Um, although the way we do our labs, there's a better chance because I teach some. I, I, it's complicated, but um, I teach lab sections, and the labs and the classes are not okay. connected. Like college. so, yeah, they're like college, and so I ha- end up having most of the AP students, and my colleague ends up having most of the AP okay. students because we have them in cross section. There's usually actually a very small number in this upcoming year. We'll see it. There's going to be a very small number who don't have both of us um, for for the way it gets cut up. But yeah, it's, it's cool to see it grow um, because it means that the course is not like pushing people away. The message going out in the student body is not avoid this class. (laughs) So so that's, it's good that it's good when those things happen. All right. So um, I know one of the things you already, you already let it slip out a little earlier that horseback riding, (laughs) I would say one of the funniest moments for me when I do my background stalking Mm -hmm. of people is I go and I look at all the different things and I, you know, Google search people and I look at all the different stuff and I scroll through your old Twitter (laughs) and I open up your YouTube and your YouTube is you jumping yep. horses. Yeah, yeah. So, so when you're not teaching, you're with uh, your horse. Yeah, for the most part. 
I, yeah, I've been riding since I was really little. My mom was involved with it as a kid. And then I got into this organization called the United States Pony Clubs, which is this amazing organization that combines horsemanship and veterinary knowledge and like equine stable management practices with riding. So you have levels, it's very standardized and very curriculum based. It was developed by many teachers and many teachers are still involved. So riders will will test for various levels similar to like karate. And then you receive different certifications. You can then do different things with those certifications. And there's different tracks you can choose from and different experiences. We have championships, we have international exchanges. um, And eventually, you get to a point where you're teaching and mentoring other riders. And so that is also where I developed a lot of my teaching skills and my talking to parents skills and my working (laughs) in tough situations and first aid skills. Um, So yeah, that's that that's my big piece. And so yeah, my YouTube is a pretty solid video record. For a while, it was like a video dump where I didn't want the video on my phone anymore, but I still wanted to uh, have a have record of it. So you know, just like people who video themselves, you know, doing all sorts of like athletic stuff. I go back and rewatch the videos and, and look at my riding and look at how my horse is moving and compare and contrast and, and look forward to the future. And depending on if you just searched on YouTube, there's a couple of competition videos as well, which is fun. Once once kids realize that I'm that crazy horse girl, then they start <laughs> to Google too. And then they find these competition videos and they're like, oh my God, you go so fast. And so it's, it's yeah, that's, that's that, um, the horse stuff. So I do a lot still with that organization, a lot of volunteering and coaching and teaching with that. I hang out with my dog. I also am one of those people that have a, a part-time job outside of school. I work for a little company known as Apple <laughs> in our Apple store in town. And some kids know that. Uh, some kids, I, I leave that off the introduction. If you know what I mean, the kids that flip their phone around and, you know, are treat it like mm-hmm. a hacky sack bag. Yeah. So I, uh, I really enjoy working, working for Apple. I really enjoy working. Actually, I I enjoy working part time. I genuinely do. Um, I work, you're going to freak out at this, but I work about 20 hours a week at Apple. So I, (laughs) you know, have a pretty healthy, like 60 hour work week without grading or any of those, you know, outside of the classroom hours, things that we do. So, but I don't, I don't, I don't live a life where I do anything that I don't want to do. So I just am very action packed. We'll see. Maybe I'll slow down at some point. Well, we're not sure yet. <laughs> yeah, it's you know, it's different times of your life. Yeah. You do different things, so just, gotta live it while you can. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I I could easily talk about how much time I spend, you know, bring, driving my kids to things or coaching soccer for my kid right. and stuff like that. It's the same. It's the same deal. It's yeah. like it's just a different way of chunking up that yeah. time. You're investing your time in different places. Yeah. All right. So before we get to picks the episode, do you have any questions for me? I feel like we touched on many of my, my larger questions. I guess, what would you say are your, the, the top things that you want kids to walk away from your classes with? Like top, like mm. ideas or pieces of information or skills? Yeah, I, so, I mean, I generally teach pretty high-end, high-powered kids, both honors and AP. Um, and even when I teach my alternative program kids, I, I want them to understand how scientists 
think mm-hmm. and and how science works mm-hmm. and that scientists change ideas as part of the process and it's a knockdown drag out fight for the best ideas mm-hmm. and there's a lot of good interest, uh, examples in history of people who had really good ideas and it took years for those ideas to get accepted and that's not a flaw of science that's science working right that we don't chase the shiny object yep we we we're skeptical yeah we're skeptical we 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 look at things from a lot of ideas and we argue and sometimes we are too slow to make changes mm-hmm. but we're slow to make changes because we acknowledge that the body of understanding that we have came about through a very rigorous process and so if we are going to alter that view it must withstand the same rigorous process yep. to get there and so i want my students to understand to think like a scientist how to make observations how to ask questions how to then dive into what's already known to be curious and skeptical um, and understand that um, ideas will change over time and that's okay, but they're not changing based off of whims or intuition or incomplete understanding. They're done through a, through like a really rigorous interrogation of ideas. Right. I think interesting, just not to dive off another deep end here before we finish up, but like an interesting (laughs) component of that is like the whims or the intuition like, I think something that I'm exploring a little bit more, I explored it in a PLC this past year that was about anti-racist science teaching is that like mm-hmm. what we decide as scientists to be science, um, like perspectives and ideas and experiences that different groups of people have had. There's like a whole component of like indigenous science or, or indigenous peoples who have these like what you would say would be whims or ideas about how something works. And then, you know, if this, then this sort of logical thinking. And then now down the road, we can look back and think on their ideas and think, wow, we now understand why this, why this is this or why this, then this. And so then like the ability for science to grow as this larger storybook, I think is my like, one of my favorite parts and what I what I want kids to walk away from is that this is an incomplete story that's continuing to be written, but it's almost like we're looking back at prophecies people wrote, <laughs> people wrote, but like people came up with, you know, eons ago, and now we're putting an understanding underneath that, an undercurrent of that um, into this larger explanation. Yeah. And I like to, I like to often say that like the things about science that we get wrong, the reason we get them wrong is not because of science, but because of history. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I like to say that to my history friends. Mm-hmm. So like a good example of one of those, and I was again, just talking about this the other day with people was the idea. If you get to the idea of like, you know, the origins of vaccination mm-hmm. and the ideas of protecting against smallpox. Yep. Well, the, the variolation experiments that were done in India, like centuries ago they were exposing people to the smallpox um scabs and they like so something like 30 percent of people who got smallpox were dying but if you got exposed to the like if they did a scratch and they put the scab in your skin only like one to two percent of the people were dying from that and so it was like this exposure idea and so when we think back and like oh where does vaccination come from where does this idea of exposing people to this we give Jenner all of this credit yeah. well we only give Jenner this credit because the women who brought these ideas forward <laughs> were yep. not taken seriously 
And yes, did Jenner make an advancement and did Jenner I de- develop a vaccination, which was truly the first form of that? Yeah. Yes, but he was building off of ideas that were already known by people in other countries and by people who had brought those ideas to England and were trying to share those ideas. Right. Yeah. Um, And so that, yes, he gets all this credit, but that's a patriarchal view of history. That's an incomplete story that we don't really tell from that background. Yep. So, um, yeah. And I, that's another whole, like, it's a whole other layer that I try to think about how to, to do that as I look out at the, the faces of my students who, you know, they are not, you know, a collection of old white men in front of me and they do represent a a variety of cultures and backgrounds and that sort of thing. And how do I help them see science as a story that they can play a part in? Um, That's another thing that you had brought up very early and it it resonated with me because it's something that, um, you know, as I, as I grow old and I become one of those old white men, um, (laughs) (laughs) I don't, I don't want to be a perpetuator of, of having students not be able to picture themselves as scientists. Yeah. So, all right. Well, we got deep there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> let's shift to picks of the episodes today. What's your pick? Um, so my pick was a nature article that came out earlier this year. Title is mitochondrial DNA can be inherited from fathers, not just mothers, uh, which is a pretty explosive title considering that was a pretty firm concrete (laughs) component of biology for an extremely long time. And so, you know, exploring the ways that mitochondrial DNA can be um, inherited by offspring. Besides all the science of it, I just love the fact that this is something that gets posted in January 2019. I One of my big parts that I I touched on besides being a, a naive freshman in college in all my, all my other ways, I left high school probably with, and none of this was influenced by my biology teacher, I'm sure, but I left high school with this stupid understanding or stupid thought that we had everything figured out because to me, I was like, what else is there in biology besides, I don't know, mitosis and Punnett squares? Obviously, I was very wrong and I, I got perfectly fine grades on all the other tests, but to me, I thought we were like science field delivered done. And so obviously very much incorrect, uh, as one learns when one is exposed to new ideas. And so, um, I love this because this article as it, as it just continues on that path of proving little naive me at 18 years old, but then plenty of other people wrong, uh, which is that this is a constantly evolving story, sort of a choose your own adventure, but no one's choosing. We're just discovering. So that's what well, I, I, about it. I think you, you need to, you need to embrace the idea. You thought science, science was a noun. Yeah. Science science is a verb. Yes. Yeah. Hold on to that. Yeah. For sure. One of my cliches that my students get tired of me saying. (laughs) (laughs) It's not a noun, it's a verb. Yeah. Um, So, yes, you have a textbook, but large chunks of that are wrong. And there'll be articles that come out this year that tell tell us where we're wrong. Right. As soon as it was printed, it's wrong, right? Yeah. All right. Well, I went a very different direction. Um, I heard about this book called The Law's Guide to Nature Drawing and Journaling. And I came across this. I heard about it. um, I think it was on another podcast. I think it was This Week in Virology pick from one of the contributors to that like a couple Mm -hmm. months ago. And I like checked it out and I opened it up and I'm like, oh my God, this thing is amazing. And so what it is, is it is literally this thing by this guy named John Laws. And Mm -hmm. it is a book that talks about 
how to do scientific journaling and how to do scientific drawing. Now, I am a terrible artist, so uh, the drawing part is not <laughs> so much for me. <laughs> but there are these chapters that are like projects that focus awareness, like how to make yeah. a collection or a field guide, how to find patterns, exceptions, changes over time, how to record events, how to deepen your inquiry through writing and diagramming, um, for making lists, from counting and measuring, different data tools you can do in the fields. Um, the things that you can do with it is they give you this guide, but if you hold your hand up and separate your fingers in different ways, you can get a rough estimate of the angle of your view between fingers of like how big of a of view are you looking huh. if you extend your arm out. And it's just cool. like an estimate, but it gives you this idea of this idea. Um, there's a section on note taking, how to structure your thoughts and plans and projections and sections, um, some ideas about how to count. Yeah. Um, and so I have my students go out and do some field observations. Um, we actually have a, a project that I'm currently a little dissatisfied with <laughs> because I feel like it's good. It gets them out there. It has them doing some things, but I don't think I give them great instructions uh -huh. about how to make observations and as a part and parcel of the initial kickoff to inquiry. And so this book literally is something that I am like, I was, when I discovered it, I was super excited about it because I feel like it gives some ideas to me. And then also like a background research, if my students have extra questions where I can say, here's some more that you can do. Yeah. And um, obviously my, my artistic students will be able to like do amazing things with this. But even if a student doesn't feel that they're very artistic, they can still journal about their observations and use those observations as a jumping off point for questions they have about the world around them. Sure. So, very cool. Yeah. That was really cool. All right. Well, today, thank you for joining me. Let me give my uh, show credits. You can subscribe to Life on the School on your podcast player of choice. What's on Apple, Google Play Store is on Stitcher, which is my favorite one, um, and other ones as well. Uh, you can support this show by going to patreon.com slash lots. Uh, Patreons get an early release of the audio of my episodes. I also post my show notes there. Uh, my Patreons help me defer some of the costs of uh, hosting my media in places and maintaining a website. So I very much appreciate them. I also post show notes on lifeoftheschool.org. Uh, music on this and every episode is provided by X Magicians and Jake Jenkins. You can follow me on Twitter at Mr. Matthew Tweets or at Life of the School. You can follow Sedate at Sedate Kohler. Um, I'll post Sedate's Twitter. I'll post her uh, Instagram up as well. And along with a lot of show notes, I take a lot of notes in this. So uh, thank you all for joining me and I will talk to everybody soon. Bye.